John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When Fernando was making the announcements, he told us about the state trooper who tragically lost his life. With that trooper comes a wife and a family and it comes a community. The reality is we live in a dark and a sinful world and the world is full of wickedness and corruption and evil and sin. Like the smell of burning smoke that lingers even on a building that's been put out. There is the lingering odor of sin that clings to our world. The Bible presents Jesus as the true light in that dark world. Jesus, we've already discovered, is eternal from verses 1 and 2. He's the creator from verses 3 through 5 and verse 9. He is the giver of true spiritual life in verses 10 through 13. He is the light of the world. He is the hope. And part of the point that is made in this particular passage of Scripture is that we were meant to see the light. We were never intended to remain in darkness. John's gospel now introduces us to this powerful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. John's witness, John's testimony, John's character provides for us an example of what it means for us to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. John was a man sent from God. He was a man with a mission from God. He was a man with a message from God. And that mission was to bear witness so that others might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is truly God's Messiah. And we discover something in this passage. The testimony that John gave was rejected by some. And it was received by others, just like you. There are those who will hear the word of God and receive it. And there are those that will hear the word of God and reject it. Let's take a peek at the messenger for God in verse six. Look what it says. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We've come to know this John, not as the author of this book. This isn't the evangelist John. This is John the Baptist, even though he isn't named at this point. In time, we discover that he is a passionate preacher. He is a prophet, but he's so much more than that. In Luke chapter 7, verse 26, there, there's the story of, of John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. And one of the disciples came to Jesus about this fanatic, this wild man out in the middle of the desert. And it says in Luke 7, 26, Jesus's response is, but what did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. In Luke's gospel, someone asked Jesus about John's strange appearance, because remember, he's dressed in camel's hair. He's got little bits and pieces of honey and locusts stuck between his teeth. He has this wild hair and this wild beard. And we know that he was both a priest and a lifelong Nazarite. You may not know what a Nazarite is. It isn't simply a person who's from Nazareth. In the Bible, there are three lifelong Nazarites mentioned. Samuel, who is both judge and prophet. Samson, who is a judge. 
and John the Baptist. Now, remember, a Nazarite was a person who took a vow to God. And in taking the vow to God, the Nazarite would not cut hair or beard. The Nazarite was restricted or or prohibited from touching a dead body. That restriction even extended to your nearest and your dearest relative. A Nazarite also was prohibited from drinking the fruit of the vine. That means whether the grape juice was fermented or not, in order to take no chances whatsoever, the Nazarite affection was on God, on the altar of God, and their love of God was to exceed any kind of earthly affection. The Nazarite forsook wine as a symbol that their exclusive joy was to be in the Lord, and they they forsook the ministry to the dead so that they could demonstrate what it meant to be alive in God. Jesus said, When you went out to the wilderness, what did you expect to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces, he says in Matthew 11, 7. You see, John would have been one of those kind of guys who gets kicked out of most churches. The moment he shows up, you direct him to the homeless ministry. Certainly, he wouldn't have Done well on Christian TV. Wild hair, yes. Big hair, no. There was no Armani suits with John. There was no gold Rolex. The Apostle John was a follower of John the Baptist. We know that from verses 35 and 36 in the first chapter. It says, again, the next day, John the Baptist stood with two of his disciples. We know that one of them is the author of our book. The other is Andrew. We discover something else that a brief biography is given of John the Baptist in Luke's gospel, chapter one, verses five through twenty five. We know that he was born in the days of Herod the Great. We know that his father was an elderly priest named Zacharias. His mother was a woman who was well past the age of childbearing. Her name was Elizabeth. And even the circumstances of John's birth was miraculous. The Bible says that even from his birth, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see in the text where it says there was a man sent from God that he was no ordinary man. He was sent By God, sent in the same way that prophets in the past were sent by God, the same way that Abraham was sent to the to the to the land of promise, the same way that Isaac was sent up Mount Moriah, the same way that Joseph was sent to prison, the same way that Isaiah was sent to preach to the people of the kingdom. And we see in that word sent a root meaning, which most of us will find familiar It's the Greek word apostol menos. You hear the word apostle in that word. It carries with it the idea of a commissioning, a representative, an ambassador, an envoy. John didn't create his ministry. He didn't fabricate it. He was sent by God. And Chuck Swindoll gives this wonderful description, quote, he stood virtually alone and fit into no preformed mold. He was neither Pharisee nor Sadducee nor priest nor Levite nor scribe. He didn't sound like a priest and he didn't smell like a saint. That's true. We, too, are sent by God. As a matter of fact. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that every single Christian is sent by God. You may not know this, but in John later in his in this particular gospel in John, chapter 20, verse 20, it says after Jesus had rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples, it says when he had said this, he showed them his hand and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you as the father has sent me. So I send you. 
How did the father send the son? Personally. Specifically. And with affection. Jesus sends us personally and specifically and with affection. We learn in the New Testament that God sends Peter and James to the Jewish people. God sends Paul to the Gentiles. Throughout history, we see God raising up men and women in every generation to to share Christ with a new generation. I think of Martin Luther, of course. And there was a man even before Martin Luther named Girolamo. Savonarola. He was an Italian kid. Before Martin Luther, he lived, he was born in 1452, he died in 1498. He was born in the little village called Ferrara in Italy. His parents were noble. They had no idea, his parents had no idea that he was going to grow up and be a man sent by God to preach the gospel to the Italian people. He was intelligent and curious and and sensitive, and he he possessed this insatiable thirst for God and for the love of God. And by his own testimony, he was ready to give up his life for the glory of God. But he grew up in a time that was wicked and corrupt, where hypocrisy filled the church. Sound familiar? If you thought that you were the only generation living in a wicked, corrupt and hypocritical circumstance, you would be wrong. The offices of cardinal and bishop were sold to the highest bidder. Immorality in its most perverse forms were present in monasteries and convents. The church had become a den of iniquity where priests sexually molested children and the burden became so great on the young priest Savonarola that he began to live a life of loneliness and ruggedness. He deprived himself of every indulgence. He was content to wear simple clothes, eat simple food. He had the hardest couch. He preached against the widespread corruption. He pleaded for people to exercise purity in their life. He pleaded for simplicity in worship. He pleaded people to turn from religion and to turn to relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, the Lord, he pleaded with people to enter into a right relationship with God through Christ. He refused to mix and mingle with the church officials, and then he became resented, and then he became hated, and then he became publicly assaulted, and then he was drawn outside the circle. And one day the Pope of Rome summoned him to Rome and he refused to go. And they broke into his church while he was having devotions and they dragged him through the streets and they tortured him for weeks in prison. And the pope's envoy was so committed to murdering him for heresy, he wrote, quote, put Savonarola to death, even if he's another John the Baptist. In an unjust rage, they took him out. They dragged him into the center of the city. They murdered him. They hung him. Then they set him on fire. And then they took his ashes and threw them into the river Arno. Just like John was called and sent by God to a wicked and a corrupt generation. In each and every generation, there seems to be this reoccurring theme. Who will stand for God? Who will speak the truth? We see his motive for ministry. Look at verse 7. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe John's mission is clearly spelled out in verse 7. He came for a witness to bear witness of the light. You need to understand something. John is not an attorney for Jesus. He 
is to bear witness. By the way, an attorney has a responsibility to represent his or her client, to advocate on the client's behalf, to argue for the client, to persuade people who who are against the client, to help people make a decision favorable for the client. But that's not who John the Baptist is. He is to be a witness. And there are three things that you need in order to be a witness. You have to have a knowledge of the facts. You have to have a reputation for honesty. And you have to be willing to tell the truth. Does John have a knowledge of the facts? Certainly he does. Remember later on in John's gospel in this opening chapter, when Jesus is seen walking along the beach, when he has John and Andrew with him, he points to Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Does he have a reputation for honesty? So much so that when he condemns Herod for taking his brother's wife and marrying her and he publicly denounces it for the wickedness that it is, he is arrested. And you know the story. Salome dances for her father-in-law. In a fit of drunken lust, he offers her, offers her up to half of the kingdom and she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And they kill him. Not only did he have a knowledge of the facts, not only did he have a reputation for honesty. But he was willing to tell the truth. Even when it was hard. That's who he was. He preached. He pointed people to the Messiah. Remember, he is a voice that points people to Jesus. And John's purpose was to lead people to Israel's Messiah and to encourage them to believe in Christ. That's what it says in the text, that all through him might believe. And the key word is believe. And here, believe means more than to simply acknowledge or accept him with your mind. It means more than to, than to just sit in your seat and say, I believe that Jesus is real. I, I believe that he lived and that he died and that he rose from the dead. From a very early age, I believe that there was a Jesus and I believe that he lived and I believe that he died. But that's not the kind of belief that is here spoken of. As a matter of fact, the Greek word epistason here is used just a few chapters later in John chapter 2, verse 24, where it speaks of the distrust that Jesus has for the hypocrisy and the wickedness within human beings. It says in John 2, 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Same word, commit, because he knew them. The word means to trust and rely and to commit the idea being to stake everything that you have and everything that you are on the reality of the life and the death and the ministry of Jesus. It's to risk everything. That he's the one. And look what it says in verse eight, the method for success. John is sent by God. He is sent with a message for God. And it says he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So we learn at least two things from verse eight, that John is a lamp, but not the light. He is a witness, but not the word. Over and over again, John will use this metaphor. Jesus is the light. Well, what does that mean? According to Wikipedia, light is electromagnetic radiation of a wavelength that is visible to the eye. That's visible light. In a, in a scientific context, the word light is sometimes used to refer to the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Light is composed of an elementary particle called a photon. So do you suppose John means that Jesus is a photon? Or a collection of photons? I suspect that that's not the meaning. I suspect that what he is talking about is that Jesus is in fact 
a metaphor, or, or at least in this particular circumstance, that he is a metaphor of vision. That what light does is it provides the very mechanism whereby you can see in a dark circumstance, in a wicked circumstance, in an evil circumstance. As a matter of fact, I read and I quote, science indicates that light is constituted of three rays or groups of wavelengths distinct from each other, no one of which without the other would be light. Each ray has its own separate function. The first originates. The second formulates, illuminates, manifests. And then the third consummates. The first ray, often called invisible light, is neither seen nor felt. The second is both seen and felt. The third is seen, but is the third is not seen but is felt as heat. Isn't that a wonderful illustration of the Trinity? The Father is neither seen nor felt. The Son is both seen and felt. The Holy Spirit is not seen. But when He heats up a place, when He lights it on fire, you can be sure that you feel the heat. We discover that John the Baptist was a light, but not the light. As a matter of fact, a few chapters later, as we proceed into John's gospel, in John chapter 5, verse 35, Jesus says of John the, the Baptist, he was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. There are two words used. One is lamp, like um, like moss, which literally means an oil or a burning lamp in the ancient world, by the way, a lamp. I, I have a, a lamp from about the first and second century A.D. It's made out of dirt or made out of clay. It would have had an open at the top and a spout and you would fill it with oil and then you would light a piece of, of cloth or linen that would serve as a wick. The second word is phos, which is correctly translated light. And we use that word even in our own language when we speak of the word photograph or we think of the word phosphorus, the mineral that is both light and burning. Phosphorus simply means light that burns. And so we discover that that John was a lamp, but not the light. What kind of a lamp are you? You see, most of us have lamps. We have desk lamps. We have fancy lights. We have lamps made of brass or glass. Uh, some fixtures are common. Some fixtures are rare. But you know what all fixtures have in common? If they're doing their job, they contain a bulb that gives off light. When people meet you, are they more impressed with the light or with the fixture? You see, John was a lamp, but not the light. It was his purpose to shine for Jesus. And so we discover something that even as we look at the exam at, at, the, at the example of John, we can see parallels in our own life, just like. John was sent by God. You are sent by God. Just like John was was declared to be a witness. You are declared to be a witness. You are to know the facts around Jesus. You're to cultivate a reputation for honesty. You're to have a willingness to tell the truth. And you're supposed to have a desire to reflect the light of Christ. The poet Robert Browning wrote, If I stoop, into a dark, tremendous sea of cloud, it is but for a time. I press God's lamp close to my breast. Its splendor, soon or late, will pierce the gloom. I shall emerge one day. It's his poet, poetical way of saying, in the darkest of circumstances, when the lights seem out, when the circumstances of my life seem like I don't know which way to go, I press the reality of the light that's found in Jesus Christ, knowing that with that light, I'm going to find my way out. John is a lamp, but not the light. John is a witness, but not the word. 
Let me tell you what I mean by that. I have a friend named Holland Davis who wrote a very wonderful worship song. Sometimes we sing it. It's called Let It Rise. You know, let the glory of the Lord rise among us. I have another friend named Fernando Ortega who's written lots and lots of modern day worship songs that are sung all around the world. Even Clarence. Clarence will will write songs and perform music and and other people will take his songs and sing his songs. And so whether a person like Holland Davis or Fernando or or Clarence is singing a song, sometimes it is very, very much different to hear the words of a song that has been written by someone, you know, being sung by somebody else. There's a relationship between the artist and his song. In this particular instance, what John the evangelist is saying about John the Baptist is that it's John the Baptist's voice, but Jesus is the song. It's John's voice, but the words are coming from God. And so when you hear the evangelist or you hear the pastor or you hear the teacher in the first service, I had a person talking about who was traveling all over the country and was was thanking me for the podcasts that are available at our website. And he said, it's good to hear your voice when I'm far, far from home. It's my voice. But remember the word. It's the words of God. I didn't make up this story. I'm not the person who invented the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. You'll remember even later in John's gospel in verse 23, when we come to it, it says that the the religious leaders are asking um, John who you are. And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I'm just a voice. But the word is God's word. The the religious leaders asked John, well, who are you then? And John said, I'm not the Christ. John made it clear that he was a simple servant, that he's a, a messenger. Hopefully he's a useful servant, but he's not indispensable. He's a witness. He was never supposed to be the object of worship. He was never supposed to be the object of, of veneration. As a matter of fact, there is a, a little hint that's given to us, even in the text, that even when John wrote these Gospels, that there were certain people who had an unhealthy preoccupation with his ministry. And John never has anything bad to say about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist himself exists in order to point people to Jesus. In nature, the moon is a lifeless dead rock, a celestial object that never gives light. It simply reflects light. Whenever you see the moon shining in the night, the light comes from the sun. And whenever you see John shining in the Gospels... It's because he's reflecting the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the light revealed. Look at verse nine. It says that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Throughout the history of humanity, there have always been those who have claimed to be saviors and lights. But look what John says. That was the true light. And the word here, true means more than just intrinsically the opposite of false. It means genuine. When something is particularly valuable, sometimes people will try to create a copy. People will sometimes try to uh, counterfeit $20 bills or $50 bills or $100 bills. But does anybody counterfeit $3 bills? See, you laugh because there's something inside of you going, that would be ridiculous. Do people counterfeit dirt? Do people counterfeit asphalt? You don't counterfeit that which is ordinary, that which is plain. You counterfeit that which is valuable. 
Throughout history, there have been teachers and religious philosophers and rulers who have claimed to point people to the truth. Mary Gardner Brainerd said, I would rather walk with God in the dark than go alone in the light. Because the truth is, there's only one light. Einstein said that the reason that he could construct the theory of relativity was because there was one thing in the physical material universe that was unchangeable. That one thing, the speed of light, the only constant in this physical material universe, you know that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Seven times light will go around the planet in the blink of an eye. John is making the statement that the one constant in all of the spiritual universe is the reality of the identity of Jesus Christ. Are there false lights? The answer is yes. Are there pretenders who claim to hear from God, who claim to show the way to God, who claim to reveal the things of God, but they are in fact false lights? According to John, that's exactly right. And you'll know what else it says in verse nine. Read it for yourself. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Not just the white man. Not just the Western Protestant man. That was the true light which gives light to every man. In Norway, in Sweden, in Germany, in Italy, in Greece, and in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, in Africa, in Asia, on the Hawaiian Islands, in Indonesia. For those of you who have had family or friends who said, well, you know, that religion is for you, but I have my own religion. You have your religion. I have my own religion. But guess what? Jesus came into the world to give light to every man. And how does... Jesus gives light to every man. Jesus gives light to every man through the natural revelation, through creation, through the order of the universe, through the presence of a conscience. In Psalm 19, 1, it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Every human being who has ever existed in every age and in every generation knows that a, that a creation implies a creator. And every person in every generation knows that inside of their very heart of hearts and soul of souls, that there's such a thing as right and there's such a thing as wrong. It's called conscience. And if God gave you a conscience, doesn't it, isn't the most simple assumption that can be made by any human being is that God must have a profound sense of rightness and wrongness? In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul writes, and he says, Every single human being living in every single generation can come to the conclusion that there is a God, that he is mighty and glorious, eternal and holy. In Acts chapter 14, verse 17, it says, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. People will often say, well, what about the witness? Yes, the world received the witness of Jesus and the, and the people of Israel received the witness of John the Baptist. But what about the people who never received the witness of Jesus? And the Bible's explanation is very, very clear. Everyone who draws breath received a, a witness. Everyone who's seen the sun come up has received a witness. Everyone who ha has food instead of nothing received a witness. Everyone who experiences anything good receives a witness. And look what it says in verses 10 and 11. Because this is shocking. I suspect that John is even shocked when he writes down the words. He writes down the words, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. I'm sure that even as he penned those words, he thought, 
how could it how could people turn away so quickly? And so completely from the Messiah. How could people reject the Messiah? The, the world, the creation was made by the Messiah. The Messiah created the heavens and the earth. The Messiah created the dirt that you walk in and the water that you drink. The very world which Jesus made. The very people that Jesus selected. His own countrymen, the Jews, did not receive Him. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world means not simply the physical world, but the reality of the world of humanity. And the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came into his own. It's one thing to be rejected by a stranger. And it's another thing to be rejected by your own family. Imagine you grow up in your home. Here is your mother. Here is your father. You live in this house. You eat in this house. You breathe in this house. You you live every minute of every month of every day of every year. And all of a sudden you come home one day from school and everybody says, who, who are you? Who are you? I'm your little girl. I'm your little boy. We don't know you. You might think that's a ridiculous illustration. Really? The Lord prepared the world. He prepared his countrymen. The Lord spoke to Adam and the Lord spoke to Noah and the Lord spoke to Abraham and the Lord spoke to Isaac and the Lord spoke to Jacob and Joseph and Judah. And God made promises to David in every generation. The Lord prepared a group of people to receive their Messiah. And in that part of the preparation process, he gave us clues and indications he's going to be the son of David, he's going to be born a virgin. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to say the greatest things that have ever been said. He is going to do the greatest things that have ever been done. Isaiah warned that he would open blind eyes and deaf ears, that he would preach the gospel, that he would have power over demons and disease and even death itself, and that he would come back to life. How could you not receive him. They had given ample warning. And look at that expression. He came to his own. It'll occur one more time in John's gospel. The exact phrase. Do you know where it appears? If you fast forward in John's gospel to John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, you know the story. Jesus is hanging on the cross with Mary, his mother, and John, the apostle, by the cross. And Jesus says to his mother, behold, your son. And to John, behold, your mother. John continues and he writes these words, quote, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Same expression. Into his very own home. As a matter of fact, the phrase translated, he came to his own. Literally, in the original language says, into the one's own things. The best scholars in the world tell us it was the ordinary expression people used to refer to home. He came home. He came home. You see, it's one thing to experience rejection from strangers. In a place where you've never been. To come to the place. Of anticipation. And familiarity. And they did reject him. For many Jesus was a huge. Disappointment. The religious leaders of Jesus's day. Imagined a world without Jesus. 
They imagined religion without Jesus. They imagined relationship to God without Jesus. They said, we have Abraham. We have Moses. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the writings of the prophets. We are perfectly content to be religious. We are perfectly content to have a life apart from Jesus, just like some of you and some of your family. I was born a Catholic. I was born a Protestant. I was born a Lutheran. I was born a nothing. I was born this. I was born that. And I'm content, perfectly content to be what I am. I don't need Jesus. But thank God he doesn't leave it there. Look what it says in verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I'm thinking about writing a book. I think I'm going to entitle it Big Butts in the Bible. This is the first chapter. But. As many as received him. To them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. I don't know if you're one of those people who underlined your Bible, but there are four key words in there. There's every word is important. The first word, but is the contrast. The, the next three verbs receive, believe, become. And if you look at them in the chronological order, believe, Receive, become, we believe in his name, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right, the power, the authority to become children of God for those who received him, not for those who, who rejected him or resisted them, those who received him to those who believe in his name. And what does that mean? You'll note something right off the bat. It doesn't even give us the name. He doesn't say the name. But we know what name he's talking about. Matthew uses the name 151 times. Mark uses the name 13 times. Luke uses the name 88 times. But John, in this gospel, will use the name of Jesus no less than 247 times. And the name... Combines deity and humanity. It's the name that's given in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Remember, the angel says to Mary, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And to believe in that name is to believe in all that that name implies and all that that name signifies and all that that name occupies. It is to believe in the prophecy surrounding the name, the birth of uh, surrounding that name, the life, the death, the resurrection, all that the name contains. But that in and of itself doesn't place you in the family of God. You have to receive Jesus. That's why John writes at the beginning of the verse, but as many as received him. You see, he places in a position of primacy reception. Jesus imparts new life. It's not simply good enough to confess Jesus, to believe Jesus. You have to receive Jesus. He has to become your savior. And in order to become your savior, remember, you're not just simply intellectually acknowledging the historical circumstances surrounding his life, his death and his resurrection. You're playing deal or no deal. It's where you're betting everything. You're betting everything. Your past, your present, your future, you're betting everything. That Jesus is God's Messiah. That God sent Jesus. That God allowed Jesus to die for your sin. That God did all of those things so that you could experience hope and forgiveness. The Lord makes you a child. By the way, how does believing 
how does receiving make one a child of God? God does a miracle. God does a miracle. See what it says in the text? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become. That expression, to become, means that God does a miracle. He makes you a child of God. He transforms you from the kingdom of light, or from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. To everyone who believes in His name, we become children of God. The Lord imparts life, life from above, life that is eternal. You find yourself in Christ. And we're born again, not as the result of human descent, not as a result of human desire, not as a result of human design. That's what it means when it says who were born, not of blood in the original language. It's bloods. We don't have a a proper translation um, of that particular word in our culture and society and in our language. Blood can be both singular and plural. So when it says who were born, not of blood. That means paternity and maternity from both directions. We are born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. The will of the flesh means no amount of wishful thinking and willingness can make you a child of God. No human descent, not of blood. You can't be a Christian because your mom was a Christian. Your father was a Christian. Your grandma and grandpa were Christians. Faith and salvation are not a part of human DNA. They can't be sexually transmitted or inherited. Not of the will of the flesh. You know, I've noticed something in John's writings and and, and And Paul's writings, Paul, when he writes about the flesh in the book of Romans in the book of Ephesians in the book of Philippians, Galatians and Colossians. When Paul writes about the flesh, he means everything that we are apart from Christ. And the emphasis seems to be on the sinfulness and the wickedness of humanity. But when John writes about the flesh, he his emphasis isn't so much on the sinfulness and the wickedness of humanity as it is on the brokenness And the weakness and the lack of strength. That's what he means when he says no amount of wishful thinking and willingness can make you a child of God. You know what? You may dream of being a millionaire and then become one. You may dream about the Rockies winning in the playoffs and then they do. You may dream about them going to the World Series. You may dream about graduating from school. You may dream about getting married. Some of you might be dreaming about getting a divorce. And it might just happen. But you can't will yourself into the kingdom of God. Your parents may may have baptized you as a child. And you may have done your best to do your religious duties and achieve spiritual goals, but it won't impart life. The only thing that will impart life is a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You see, in order to be a witness, in order to be sent by God, in order to reflect Jesus, You have to make sure that you have a right relationship with God. Are you ready to invite Jesus into your life and receive him as your Lord and your Savior? Because if you are ever in Christ, you are forever in Christ. And now you can become a witness. Sent by God to reflect Jesus to a wicked world. You may have wondered why you even exist. And that's why. To have friendship and relationship with God. 
and to bring Jesus and present Jesus to whoever is willing to listen. Guess what? Some will reject, just like they did John the Baptist. But others will receive, and they'll experience forgiveness and hope and a new life and heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, for those who have resisted and and even up until this point rejected. Lord, I pray that they would surrender. And instead of rejecting and resisting, that they would receive Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And if that's you and you need to have a right relationship with God. You resisted him and rejected him. But you understand that you need to receive him, that there really is no life apart from him. Just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. It's easy to do. Praise the Lord. It's easy to do. Surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm simply the witness. But the words are God. I'm simply the lamp. But the light is Christ. putting it off. Now is the time to receive it. Christian, are you ready to be sent by God? Are you ready to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to be a lamb? Then ask yourself this question. What kind of a fixture am I? Fixer-upper? My advice Find the biggest bulb and burn as bright as you can. God wants to use you. It's not too late. You can be used today. God is sending you today. God is preparing you today. God is going to allow today to be a time and an opportunity for you to share Christ in only the way that you can to only the people that you can. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women, Lord. I pray that like John of old, we could be witnesses. Like Savonarola, like Martin Luther, and like Martin Luther King. Lord, as you raise up men and women in a new generation, the Amy Carmichaels, the David Livingstons, the Hudson Taylors, Lord, I pray that we would bring Christ to a wicked world.